and welcome to this Royal Irish Academy podcast on climate and society in Ireland. I'm your host, Jill Plunkett, and this is a series of four podcasts exploring the long view of climate change by interviewing the authors of Climate and Society in Ireland. We talk about hunter-gatherers, disease, poetry, weather events, and consider our future vulnerabilities. So I'm joined today by John Sweeney, Professor Emeritus from Geography Department at the University of Maynooth. John, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome here today. Climatologist or meteorologist, how would you describe yourself? Oh, very much a climatologist. Uh, I wouldn't venture into weather prediction, which is the realm of Medairn and meteorological organisations. Uh, I think there's a very fundamental difference between the two. Um, meteorologists generally look at very short-term events. Um, they don't really have a tradition of looking at the, the long term. Climatologists, on the other hand, uh, think in terms of 30-year averages and shifts in long-term weather conditions, if you like, um, and make bad meteorologists as well, uh, and vice versa. Uh, and of course, you know, weather is what we get um, day to day. Climate is what we expect really on a long term uh, trajectory, a long term average. So there's a fundamental difference between the two. And uh, in the public mind, of course, um, they are hopelessly confused. Um, you know, weather to the average person in the street uh, and climate are, are indistinguishable. And that's an important um, target for especially climatologists to try and make that distinction because um, you can cause awful confusion, but also you can cause, I think, misinterpretation of the message of climate change in particular um, because of that difference in the public uh, psyche between the two. And how did you get into this field? Well, I, I was always interested in, in climate uh, as a student and... Um uh, I recall uh, when I was doing my PhD in, uh, I did it in air pollution originally, and I kind of got interested in, well, what would happen uh, to air pollution concentrations if if the climate started changing or the wind direction started changing? Um, and, and that was an awful long time ago. And I recall my tutor um, sort of confronting me and I said to, to her, it was, she was quite a famous biogeographer, Joy Tyvey, I said, who's ever going to want a climatologist? Because uh, in those those days it was very much the dry and dusty bookkeeping exercise where if you were in um, a Met service, for example, it was the, akin to being exiled to Siberia if you were told to look after the climate records um, and nobody wanted to know anything about climate. And of course, since then, you know, it's become very much uh, centre stage in, in atmospheric science. And uh, I got interested in, in climate, I suppose, when I started looking at rainfall in Ireland um, and, and I started saying seeing that there was quite a big geographical difference between rainfall with different wind directions in Ireland between the northwest, for example, and the southeast. And it occurred to me, well, what would happen to the rainfall distribution of Ireland if we got more westerlies or less westerlies in the future? And then, of course, I began to say, well, let me put that into the computer and ask the question. And we had no climate models in those days. We had no sort of way of, of doing forecasting 
uh, in advance. And um, what, what came out surprised me in that I, I began to see, well, we're going to get floods in the northwest, we're going to get more droughts in the southeast if that happens. And of course, then along came climate models, along came a lot more in the way of information about what was happening to the world's circulation. Uh, and of course, from there, the concerns about climate change really took off. And um, uh, I guess, you know, in those early days, there was a great deal of scepticism about climate change around, even among scientists. And uh, it was a long haul uh, and a long process to try and change hearts and minds, even in the scientific community. But I think, you know, that is now something which has been completely reversed in, in recent decades. Yeah, that, that brings me very nicely on to my next question. You were the co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 for your contributions to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. I'm, I would say that I'm honoured to be in the presence of a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, but I'm not actually in your presence, but, but the equivalent of... Um, but the IPCC's latest report, the Sixth Assessment Report, was published just last month. Um, now, I'm not going to ask you to summarise the, the near 4,000-page report, um, but I think what is interesting and what what the, the audience may have heard of um, are the scenarios that the, the IPCC predicts for future climate, depending on how we manage to control our greenhouse emissions. Um, so... You'll be familiar with the types of models used and what the models consist of. Could you maybe um, explain to the audience what these entail? Well, I mean, the IPCC was awarded the Nobel Prize jointly with Al Gore uh, rather than individuals, and there are many individuals uh, rather than myself. But um, certainly it did represent a, a breakthrough in terms of modelling capability and modelling capacity at the time. Um, models are things which, of course, are, are, are incomplete representations of reality, and we must never mistake models for reality. But what they uh, really demonstrate to us, well, they're the only option available to us because uh, if you wanted to build a hardware model of the Earth's circulation, for example, it's totally beyond the capacity of the human mind to do that. So all we can do is build a simplification uh, based on, on what we know about the, the physical laws of what changes in terms of the atmosphere, its response to heat, how it moves. And we know those basic physical laws. So if we can build them in to little uh, sort of cells in the atmosphere, uh, we can then start asking the, the questions, well, what happens if we warm up this cell? What happens if we change the composition of this cell? And global climate models have evolved in such a way that we, we have broken up the Earth into, uh, if you like, grids um, with numbers of, of different layers above the surface and below the ocean, and ask the question, well, what happens if we disturb this little grid by warming it up or changing the composition of the atmosphere. What effect does that have on the grid next door? What effect does it have on the layer above? What effect does it have on the ocean below? And that is really, really 
the kernel of uh, global climate models because it introduces enormous complexity. Not only do you have to say what effect does it have on the layer above or the layer beside it, but you have to say how does that ripple through not just that layer but through the whole globe in the end of the day. So that introduces huge computational complexities which have bedeviled the development of climate models uh, over the years and have made them very much dependent on how fast and how quick we can build really uh, supercomputers to handle those what-if questions. And um, we, we, we have moved from very primitive models, if you like, which represent the, the, the Earth as a kind of um, flat surface with no features, uh, to ones which now can incorporate all kinds of complexities like vegetation, uh, like different compositions of the atmosphere, like ocean currents and so on. Uh, and that has come about because computer development has been so rapid. We now are at a situation where we're building what are called um, exoflop computers. Now, I, I get lost on all of these terms, petaflop, exaflop, megaflop, but they are floating operations per second. And I know that, you know, we're into stupendous speeds now uh, in computer development. I think the, 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 the winner at the moment is one being built in Japan, one operational in Japan, uh, which is called Fugaku. And it's going to be challenged by a Tesla-type computer in the next uh, few, few years in, in the U.S., but all of that means that we can now answer much more sophisticated questions about climate. We can begin to project what's going to happen in the future with more confidence. And we can calibrate our climate models to tell us, that, well, uh, how can we tweak it to, to explain better what we know has happened uh, in the recent past? And so models today can replicate the, the climate of the past oh, 150 years when we had uh, reliable observations developing, and they can replicate what's been happening very, very accurately indeed. And this gives us confidence indeed that therefore when we push them into the future, uh, then they're going to be uh, they're going to be something that we can we can count on as, as giving us a good picture for the future. But one of the key IPCC outcomes, which I think is worth mentioning here, is that the IPCC have looked at models which have been run in the absence of any human factors, using simply things like volcanoes, uh, using simply things like uh, changes in solar output. And They've asked the question, well, where should we be in the world in terms of our temperature using those natural factors alone? And what comes out is we should be actually cooling slightly at the moment. And it's only when you've put in the greenhouse gases, when you put in the changes that we've made to the atmosphere as human beings, that suddenly you get the trend in temperature almost exactly replicated that we have seen over the past 150 years. And that's really a statement which tells us that, you know, climate change is now unequivocally in the control of us, in the control of humans. That's to me, that's a very difficult concept to actually get your head around because, um, you know, as Irish people, you know, we've often talked about going out to save the hay uh, or going out to save the turf. What are we saving it from? Uh, we're saving it from uh, fluctuations in climate, which in the past 
would have said, okay, um, tough luck. You're not going to have enough turf for this winter or you're not going to have enough hay for, for your cattle this winter or even you're not going to have enough food this winter. We were at the mercy of climate in the past. We were at the mercy, um, we were prisoners of climate in Ireland um, and, and that was well demonstrated historically. But the change has now happened and climate globally is now a prisoner of what we do. Uh, and that's a fundamental shift in, in our relationship with the world, which we have to get our heads around. And we have to suddenly realise that we are now responsible for the future. We are now responsible for our children and grandchildren's future in this area. And therefore, you know, the, the rules have changed and, um, you know, we have to change our, uh, our psyche accordingly powerful stuff. Your paper in the Climate and Society volume looks at climate climate and society in modern Ireland, past and future vulnerabilities. So I thought we might just jump in at the deep end. Um, in keeping with the water metaphor, just how far up the creek are we at the moment in your view? Well, I, I think, you know, in, in Ireland's case, um, we are what some people term one of the lifeboat countries possibly in the future in that we will have maybe less severe consequences from climate change than some other countries, for example, in continental interiors. Um, and that will come about because of our location uh, in the ocean, because um, our, our temperature extremes will be moderated, uh, our rainfall deficits will be moderated because of our location. And now, it doesn't mean, though, that we, we are going to escape from climate change in any shape or form in Ireland. And indeed, we know that we're already uh, underway in terms of, of the temperature changes that we've seen uh, and possibly also the rainfall changes. If we look at the the 30-year average of uh, of the past 30 years, we're about uh, 0.65 degrees warmer already than we were uh, in the 1990, 61-90 uh, period. So, you know, those things are, are happening in Ireland. It's not, climate change is not something that happens in Africa and Asia and doesn't happen in Ireland. We're a mid-latitude country and therefore one would expect that we will follow the global average relatively closely, ultimately. And um, when we look at the trend in Irish temperature uh, over the past century and a half, uh, then that tends to be confirmed. We, we maybe uh, have a few years of, uh, of lag uh, because of the ocean effect around us, but ultimately um, we're, we're going to see many of the changes happening uh, at a global average level being replicated in Ireland. And that means, I suppose, uh, a couple of things. It means, firstly, uh, for example, we're going to warm in our, uh, our winter and summer um, over the next 30 years by another probably one degree. Um, and that will have consequences for um, our spring, for our growing season. We're already, if you like, a couple of weeks extra as a consequence of our existing change. Um, we have a couple of weeks extra in our growing season. It also uh, will have consequences in terms of our rainfall. And, and if we have the wetter winters that we expect, for example, to occur now, 
even that extra growing season is not going to be as beneficial to us as we thought because, um, you know, we may have the grass growing in our field a little earlier, but if the, if the rain is still there and the field is waterlogged after winter, we may not be able to avail of the pasture, for example. So uh, there are consequences, there are swings and roundabouts. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the ultimate issue really for Ireland is, is going to lie in the rainfall changes rather than the temperature changes because we have a strange distribution of people in Ireland where uh, almost all our people live on the east East, uh, and on the south coast to some extent. And those are the places that, for example, rainfall is expected to diminish, especially in the summer months. So we're going to see problems in terms of our competition for water increasingly in Ireland um, between municipal authorities, between agricultural activities, uh, between rural water supplies, um, for example, in a way that we haven't really thought about uh, up until now. Um, I, I recall, you know, <laughs> going back to the issue of droughts, you know, when, when I came across a, a reference um, to a drought in the in the 1830s, um, the Bishop of Meath um, in the, uh, asked for prayers for rain. And, you know, when you think about uh, in Ireland praying for rain, uh, it seems such an anomalous thing to do. But in fact, you know, we may get to that stage in the future again as well. Um, and, and it's, uh, we are well down the road in terms of change. Um, but, you know, that's no excuse for us not trying to change direction at this stage. And it's no excuse for us not trying to protect and adapt to what's coming down the road in Ireland. Because if we don't, the problem will be that as a competitive economy, we will be left behind. And, you know, it's very important that Ireland be retains its, I suppose, competitive ability in the world to grow food, uh, to be a, an efficient uh, economy, one that's not spending all of our resources uh, trying to mop up after climate extreme events. Um, and, and that's why I think it's important that we, we, we take steps now and don't procrastinate any further because the the evidence of what we've done in the past 20 years has not been good. We've failed to deliver on our uh, obligations, both to our European colleagues and indeed to the world as a whole. And, um, you know, the, the excuses for doing that have long since run out. Yeah, it's fantastic and it's horrifying at the same time. Um, it's fantastic how much we know, how, you know, and how well equipped we are potentially to respond. And yet we're not taking the necessary steps. Yeah, I, I would agree completely. Um, you know, we, we, we're, a, we're a country that has, first of all, um, a great asset. And the great asset is uh, we're small. And one of the great assets of being small is we're nimble. Uh, and we can respond much more easily uh, than the big, big industrial countries, the Germanys, the UKs, the Japans, the USAs, where to change direction requires an enormous effort. Uh, it requires something that, you know, shakes the whole society to its core. In Ireland, uh, we, we have a, a great ability to, to see a threat coming down the road and to actually collectively decide, well, we're going to do 
something about this. And I think we've seen that, I remember, in two key areas. The first, I think we, we saw a big threat of inflation occurring, oh, must be 20 years ago. And I was amazed at just how much collective unity there was. That, well, we're going to get over this problem. We're going to tackle this problem. Uh, and we did because society mobilised and society accepted that there was certain medicine we had to take to do it. And similarly, in the medicine area, you know, we've seen that happen with COVID-19 as well, where there has been a, a sort of national effort, a national consensus, if you like, to tackle and get over this problem. And that's a great asset which is very important in Ireland and, and doesn't often occur in many other countries. And I think that's why I'm more optimistic uh, that we can tackle climate change effectively in Ireland if we get our act together uh, along these lines. Um, uh, I think, you know, the, the idea of being nimble is, is a very important one. And also, of course, we have a political system uh, which, for all its faults in Ireland, has much stronger connections between the electorate and the decision maker. You know, we, 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 we know the people who make the decisions. They are not as aloof in Ireland as they are in many of the big, uh, big industrial economies. So uh, the needs, the expressed desires, uh, the sentiments of people of citizens gets transmitted more effectively in Ireland to decision makers than many other countries. And I think we have to be proud of that because it gives, if you like, uh, I suppose an imperative on decision makers to make good decisions um, on the basis of, of what the electorate wants. Now, there are flaws in this. Uh, I, I'm not an idealist. I know that there are huge pressures from people on decision makers from vested interest groups that don't want to do the good thing. Um, but I think nevertheless, the, the opportunities exist in Ireland um, to, to make, if you like, a, a pathway to the future that's more sustainable than in many other countries because of that. That is a very positive, optimistic message. It's very nice to hear, given that we've seen so many extremes. Even in the in the past few months, we've got you know temperatures of nearly fifty degrees in British Columbia. We've got rain falling in central Greenland. We've got the Arctic burning. With you know the IPCC reports predict an increase in extreme events, and in many respects they're. Well, to me, at least, they're extremely alarming. What we're facing at the moment is extremely alarming. Um, and you've already touched on, on the, the issues of um, changes in rainfall and issues with drought. But I guess the thing about extreme events is that they can be more difficult to plan for. Very much so. Um, I think we've seen... Uh extreme events in Ireland as the kind of harbingers of what's coming down the road for us. Um, we, we know that just simply objective measurements of rainfall are showing we're getting more wet days, we're getting more episodes of heavy rainfall, uh, we're getting more in the way of threats to, to our ex existing infrastructure. And similarly with storms, we're seeing, if you like, that you know we're, we're getting wayward hurricanes like, uh, uh, like Ophelia, uh, like Lorenzo, which, you know, 
are going the wrong way across the Atlantic. And uh, in some cases, you're not losing hurricane status until they get quite close to Ireland. Uh, and we had a, a tropical storm coming ashore um, even last year, uh, September last year in Portugal. And these are events which kind of send a warning to us that you know we're, we're facing into changed circumstances. And also, it questions the way we handle extremes. Um, you know, we, we, we have traditionally been talking about the once-in-a-century event, the once-in-500-year event. And, you know, we, we sometimes get that happening two years in a row now, um, just uh, which makes us ask the question, you know, how are we preparing for the future for those extreme events? And traditionally, we have used, for example, a long statistical database to work out the probability of a particular extreme event occurring and uh, then on that basis we build our dams we build our bridges we build our infrastructure to protect against what is compatible with uh, our, our economic capability at the time but really you know all of that has a one basic assumption underpinning it and that is that you're dealing with a, a database for a statistically stable climate a climate of the past a climate which is now gone uh, and if you're on a trend in that climate, if you're in an ascending trend in temperature or rainfall, it questions the validity of using those concepts of, of once in a century or once in 500 years. And I think that's where, you know, we now are entering into areas of uncertainty and areas where we have to ask uh, the question, well, should we be building our infrastructure uh, on a, a, a statistical objective base from traditional approaches like that, or should we be using the precautionary principle a bit more and, and asking the question, well, what if this happens? What if we get out with the range of past experience on a grand scale? How do we handle that in the future? And I think that's another change that's bringing into, I suppose, bringing into science, um, social science concerns. You know, what does society deem an acceptable risk? Um, you know, it's not simply in the realm of engineering anymore. It's in the realm of what are we prepared to put up with in terms of risk and return for security in the future. And th th these are difficult areas for, for, for anybody who has traditionally been brought up in a, in a scientific paradigm alone. Uh, and that's why, to me at least, that's why I came from a geography background which kind of straddles both the science and the social science areas like that and gives you a, a certain feel for both elements because I think we need both elements incorporated in the future to handle what's coming down the line effectively. But certainly we've seen, you know, this year, for example, um, you know, we've seen difficult extremes both in Ireland and internationally with the, with the fire season. Uh, and we've seen that fire getting closer and closer to us even here in Europe now with, with events in Greece and Turkey. Um, but what is really dispiriting, uh, I think, is the way in which the, the tropical rainforest in Brazil, um, we've undone so much of the of the protective measures and the good work that was done uh, in the, the early part of this century. Uh, and it's been undone, it's unravelling now from a point of view which is dominated by a political paradigm rather than an environmental one. And that's a source of sadness because I think we have to 
try and educate and try and protect those kinds of global assets. And they're not national assets, no more than our boglands are national assets. We have to try and protect those assets for the good of the global community. Um, and I'm reminded of what uh, Pope Francis referred to as our common home. And that's the common home, the global community good component that I think we have to emphasise in the future rather than narrow national self-interest. Because... Narrow national self-interest is what's got us into the, the difficulties we're in at the moment. I mean, I've been attending the COP meetings now. I'm, I'm hoping to go to my 10th one in November. Um, but what I've seen is, you know, this is COP26. What have we been doing for 25 years to tackle climate since the uh, COP1 event, which was chaired by a very young Angela Merkel way back in Berlin uh, in, in 1995? Um, and the answer is we've been, we've been trying to grapple with this issue of overcoming national self-interest uh, and trying to get the global community good component um, first and, and prominent in agreements and, and that's been very very difficult indeed to do and, and continues to be devil progress in global climate policy um, you know one wonders what brief national negotiators are given going to these international meetings and you know, I, I rather suspect a lot of them are being told well don't give anything away don't give anything which might cost us money down the road. Look after your country first and foremost. And uh, because of the requirement, therefore, of unanimity in United Nations-related um, activities, uh, unanimity is, is a very difficult, a very elusive thing to achieve, um, uh, and even more so in the climate area than perhaps even in some other areas like, like health. That's showing that the the complexities go far, far beyond what's happening to climate what and what we're doing to the environment, because it is a social issue. It, you know, the, the, people are electing the politicians who are making these decisions. There was a question, a slightly left field question I was going to put to you. You've already alluded to this, um, but in your paper, you say that Irish society was prisoner of climate as mediated through the necessity of a harvest of a harvest surplus. Um, arguably, global society is still prisoner to the necessity of a surplus or profit or increased productivity, whatever you want to call it. Um, you've already talked about how we can address a lot of these issues, I suppose with better technology. Um, but do we really need to have a much more radical change, a, a brave new world where we're moving away from increased productivity, increased profit margins? Or, or can we achieve it without, without completely changing the way we live? It's a, it's a question that many people have wrangled with um, over the years. And uh, it, the, the question boils down to, are we more or less vulnerable now uh, with our dependence on technology than our forefathers were by their dependence on brute force, if you like, in overcoming climate vicissitudes? And I think, you know, it's, it, it's fair to say that we have... We have overcome many of the short-term problems of, of hunger um, by technology. Uh, we have become very dependent on technology. Um, but, you know, we're now in an area where the technological fix to fix climate 
is in no way is it clear for the future. Um, we, we, ha we are grasping, for example, in areas such as um, geoengineering. Uh, we have made assumptions in the IPCC pro projections that we're going to somehow magically remove carbon from the atmosphere towards the end of this century. But we have no proven technology that actually can deliver that at the moment. So in many ways, you know, we're, we're acting a wing and a prayer in this area and that takes us back to the, the precautionary principle you know, what happens if we don't develop this unknown technology uh, to, to actually deliver the goods, we're, we're going to be more vulnerable than ever um, towards the end of the century and we're going to leave the people that come after us with an awful mess to clear up if, uh, if things don't uh, materialise along the way we're assuming um, I think, you know, the the belief in the technological fix um, is, is quite a dangerous thing. Um, you know, we, we, we should have a plan B um, in this area, and we certainly don't have a plan B in this area. Um, there may well be uh, things that come down the road that help us, but at this stage, all we can be assured of is that you know biological fixing of carbon dioxide may well be the, the short-term solution. Um, direct air capture of carbon dioxide is not yet proven at scale. It may well entail more energy than it actually removes, if you like, in terms of CO2. Um, and some of the more draconian methods of, of perhaps tampering with the global climate, they really worry me a lot. Um, you know, the idea of, for example, um, spraying coal dust into the atmosphere to, to increase reflectivity um, and, and therefore stop warming happening. The idea of tampering with, um, uh, with hurricanes to direct them into one country as opposed to another. Uh, the, the idea of damming the Bering Strait, for example. All of these, um, they sound okay, but you know, when you actually scratch under the surface, there are winners and losers. And the losers will not take kindly to having their climate changed unilaterally by somebody, maybe a big powerful neighbour. So I, I, I would worry about disputes and conflicts that will arise from geoengineering schemes that maybe haven't been properly thought out from a political perspective. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we go back to this idea of, you know, changing our way of working, changing society as much as we can to make it more sustainable on the basis of what we know, rather than gambling on a future that as yet we don't really know how it will pan out. On the topic of engineering, of geoengineering, um, there was a passing remark in your paper that stopped me in my tracks. You referred to a late 19th century contemplation of today, what would be considered geoengineering as a solution to a drought. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the late 19th century was a time when, especially in Ireland, you know, the, the gentleman scientist was still the, the supreme being and you could get away with things uh, on a radical scale that today you would have to go through environmental impact statements by the, by the dozen to try and get uh, agreement or, or, or permission for. But in those days, you know, there was a, a belief that you could fix things. Um, uh, I, I know that, you know, during the 1837 drought, for example, there were plans to, to sort of 
drill into the watershed in the Wicklows and change the, the water supply for Dublin. Um, but there was also some really grandiose schemes of, uh, well, maybe we know that rain happens when the air is forced to rise. Um, maybe we should force it to rise more actively by exploding things in the atmosphere over Dublin and therefore create rain. And, you know, it wasn't quite as far-fetched as, as maybe people think uh, because we, we've seen... Um, you know, rainfall tampering mechanisms grow since then. Uh, we know that, uh, for example, um, during the Olympic Games in China, there was uh, uh, all sorts of fireworks and rockets sent off west of Beijing to ensure that the clouds were all distributed or dispersed rather before the opening ceremonies took place. Uh, and that has been, you know, that has been going on um, in a smaller scale around airports, for example, with fog. Um, so there have been bits and pieces of tampering going on uh, with short-term weather conditions, but not as yet with long-term climate. But um, the explosive uh, idea around uh, Dublin, um, there were also experiments, seismic experiments, I think, on the beach, beaches around Dublin at the same time uh, to, to look at the effects of, of explosions on, on, on tectonic activity. Um, they were rather you know, interesting, far-fetched experiments we would see now, but nevertheless, um, they were reflective of a, of a society where, just like in climate, you know, the, the, the gentleman scientists, and they were all men, I'm afraid to say, in those days, the gentleman scientists were given much more free reign to do what they wanted than they would be today in terms of large-scale experiments. Wow, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think maybe the only area I haven't explored with you is the question of how do we know that the climate where the climate change we're we're witnessing today isn't part of natural variability that that things like this haven't happened in the past. Well, it's uh, it's true that, um, that one of the oft-repeated statements of, of climate sceptics is that you know any extreme we've seen today we've already seen in the past and therefore it's not due to, to human activity. And to answer that question, we have to really get a context for events that have happened in the past. We have to be able to somehow or other reconstruct past climates and say, well, um, what was different about the past and, and what is different about the way we're going today? And that's been a big challenge for people because um, you know, we haven't got a very long record of, of obje objective observations in Ireland. Um, we have, uh, on the positive side, a very rich record uh, by comparison to other countries. Um, we have observations from Armagh, for example, going back to the, the very early 19th century, which is one of the longest records in the world. Uh, but Thermometers only really became reliable uh, around about the middle of the 19th century. The, the problem was actually glass manufacturer rather than anything else. Uh, and the best glass manufacturers produced the best thermometers. But the spread of thermometry outside of uh, Europe was quite slow. And uh, it was only really uh, during the Industrial Revolution that people began to, to say, well, we need, we need weather observations now. And one of the impetuses for that 
uh, was the rapidly growing cities, uh, especially on the coal fields of Europe. So we had large populations being clustered together in what we now know as very unsanitary conditions in many cities in Europe. And um, it became clear that uh, this was ripe for producing disease outbreaks. And the very famous uh, cholera outbreak in London, which John Snow identified as coming from a particular well in the centre of, 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 uh, of London, kind of um, brought home to people that, well, we need a water supply which is reliable and which is clean. And to do that, we need to know where the rain is falling, how much is falling and whether it's reliable or not for a reservoir. And so uh, the beginnings of objective weather observations really came from that period and spread ultimately across the globe uh, and is now very widespread. But that still only gives us a couple of centuries of observations. And, you know, it's, it's not long enough to actually give us a, a, a time scale that we can produce good, reliable comparisons with what we have today. And so a great deal of effort has gone into what's called paleoclimatology, trying to reconstruct what things were like before we had direct observations from, from instruments. And that's taken a variety of, of shapes and forms, um, to mention a few um, for example, in Ireland, we're blessed with having some very good records of estates that were carried out, uh, carrying out um, sort of records of when they went out to harvest, when they went out to sow. Uh, and, and that gives us a handle on comparisons with the present day uh, in terms of, of, of the conditions. Uh, in France, there's a very novel tradition of, of, um, of the wine harvest, um, which was often decided by the elders of a village um, and they would decide when the, the grapes were ripe to go out and harvest. And that, that knowledge base was passed on from father to son to daughter and all through the, all through the years and gave us dates at which the harvest occurred. And we could say, well, if they went out to harvest on the 15th of September uh, 1454, the conditions must have been quite similar to what they were in 2021, or, and that kind of comparison. So we could reconstruct crudely, crudely the kind of conditions that applied. Uh, and then we had things like ship's logs, where, where the, 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 the master of a ship dependent on wind direction, um, would record, uh, even while in port, uh, the, the, the wind conditions and we get ideas of what directions and how strong the wind strengths were. Going back further then, we, we can of course use tree rings um, to, to work out um, what was happening way back uh, several hundred years before observations commenced. And then more recently, of course, we've been looking at bubbles in the ice sheets um, and bubbles in the ice sheets have trapped the air from anything up to a, a, a million to a couple of million years ago. And therefore, we can say, well, how much CO2 was there? How much um, sulfur was there in the air? Um, and, you know, we can begin to make uh, deductions from that and from the isotopic composition of the ice around it uh, as to, well, what were, what were um, conditions like uh, 800,000 years ago? And of course, uh, in your own area of interest, we can start seeing, well, is there tephra in there? Was there a volcanic eruption? What effect
effect did that have on temperature uh, in the in the years to follow, uh, and how much comparable activity was there in volcanic uh, sources as opposed to today, and what was the effect on temperature? So there's a great deal of uh, of paleoclimatic reconstruction which gives us the knowledge today that we are now in, uh, perhaps firstly from the observations, uh, we're now in a period of more rapid warming than has occurred for the past uh, 2,000 years, but also that we're now in a multi-century period of warming that now surpasses anything we've seen in the past 100,000 years. Now, there also are, there's a lot of difficulties here in that... Um, our observations came from Europe primarily in the in the early days, if you like, because that's where the thermometers were. Uh, and we made some really rash assumptions about things like the Little Ice Age and things like the medieval warm period. And we kind of assumed that that was happening everywhere in the world uh, the same way it was happening in Europe. And we now know that, you know, it wasn't really uh, happening to the same extent. And so we can put the changes in Europe into a wider global context as well. And that's been the the basis of, of the infamous hockey stick that uh, people have developed to show that what we've seen in the past century has been so abnormal compared to what we've seen uh, in the past uh, few millennia, really. So climatology, paleoclimatology, hot topics and really cool at the same time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Let's not leave the coldness out of it because you know one of the things that we have to face up to is that you know we're not just going to see hot extremes; we may well see cold extremes as well. And uh, what we're doing to the uh, Arctic sea ice, for example, uh, in dwindling the Arctic sea ice, may have an impact on our jet stream becoming more irregular, and that irregularity not just producing hot extremes, but producing cold extremes. And we've seen some really cold winters, both in Europe and North America, in the past three, four years, which have been consequences of the jet stream being wobbling a lot more than perhaps it has in the past, in the recent past at least. Yeah. John Sweeney, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Many thanks for joining me on this podcast. Climate and Society in Ireland is available from the Royal Irish Academy and in all good bookshops. Thank you for listening.